Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the flock freight story with my friend, Oren Zaslansky. How's it going, Oren? Great, Joe. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm very excited to have you. I didn't tell you this when we were prepping, but I kept reaching out to you guys over time. I don't know if you ever saw the, any of the messages. And then I was like, I think not so long ago when your PR people said, hey, would you like to speak to Oren? I was like, yes, please. It's been like two years. Because <laughs> your company has come up a few times on my podcast. And we'll talk about why in a minute. But before I blather on anymore, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Uh, well, again, I'm really glad to be here. I'm in uh, specifically Encinitas, California, which is part of San Diego, which, as best I can tell, over the last two years has been one of one of the best places to write best places to write out a, a global pandemic. I'm a, I guess, a third time entrepreneur, and I've been working in the in the freight industry now for about 25 years. My first business I started at 21 years old, a full truckload carrier. And for those of you in your audience, kind of really understanding the the space, specifically uh, blanket wrap, air ride blanket wrap, special commodity kind of the white glove side as a bootstrapper, which is an affectionate way of saying borrowing money, begging, borrowing, doing whatever you have to Being do poor. in order to make, <laughs> make pay. Yeah, absolutely. It is an expression. You can be either rich or king, but you can't be both. So I was king of, of, those, <laughs> of that business. Grew that to about 125 tractor trailers in a five-year period, which um, Whoa. Yeah, I'm really proud of, uh, literally, when you're borrowing every dollar. And then started a, a traditional multimodal uh, freight brokerage five or six years later, kind of decided I wanted to, to do a little more. You know, I, I liked being a little less constrained, being more creative, having the opportunity to provide a, a wider, a deeper solution for our customers. Grew that business for about another decade, uh, really enjoyed that as well, and then made the, the big decision to leap over to the tech side, see if the grass is greener. I guess six years into this one, I would tell you, uh, it depends which day you ask me as to how I'll answer that question, but it certainly is a different environment and an opportunity to, to kind of work on the industry, not in it. That was a very conscious decision six years ago in starting Flock Freight that this, as an insider to the space and, and really loving the industry that I work in, and, and I think we all realize now over the last two years how essential uh, the work that we do really is for all of us, for our communities Wanting to be a part of, of, of helping the, the industry move and evolve and, and be transformative in what we do. So at Flock, we set out to algorithmically carpool freight. So I know that that's kind of a mysterious label. But again, you've got a, you've got a sophisticated freight audience. We're taking LTL and we're turning them into shared truckloads. And we're doing it with, with tremendous software and automation. So a customer comes to us with their four-pallet LTL, their six, eight-pallet LTL. And instead of us acting as a reseller or broker and going to a traditional LTL carrier and, and brokering that freight, we combine that freight with our other customers and we turn it into what the industry may call a multi-stop truckload or a shared truckload. We then work directly with carriers and, and dispatch them to make you know multiple pickups, get full and drive directly to destination and get emptied. And, and the value that our customers um, are receiving there is it's like all the quality of the truckload industry. On-time pickup, on-time delivery, as we were discussing earlier, faster transit times, no loss, theft, damage, all the goodness that is truckload. But for the shipper that doesn't have sufficient quantity 
to make sense of of buying the whole truck and and then lastly and i promise i'll pause <laughs> no <laughs> i do this all the time is uh you know for the, on the other end of the spectrum are the are truckload shippers that are paying for full truckloads but often are not not filling that truck up they may only have 18 pallets or 20 pallets or 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 14 pallets and yet they have to pay for a truckload because those are just limitations within the industry limitations of my past life being able to go to that customer I and say man hey, look if you only need 14 pallets let's sell you 14 pallets worth of space on a 53 footer and We'll take care of the rest. Don't worry about it. And you'll get full truckload service and quality, but you'll only pay for the portion of the truck that you use. Yeah, that's that, that's that's a mouthful. So you've been there, done that. So I want to get back to uh, just back to Flock Freight. So you you created this company that said, "I'm not fully truckload. I'm not I'm not LTL. I'm going to take these LTLs and turn a few LTLs into a truckload." And by the way, I think there's people listening to the podcast. I've done that myself. My team did that. I would say, hey, you know, how many LTLs a week are we moving? What days are we moving? Make that a truckload. We did it anecdotally, not not with an algorithm, no no smart engine making that happen. We would do that and it would be valuable. We see, And we would say to our customer, look what we did, right? Pat ourselves on the back and say, we saved you a little bit of money, but it didn't happen enough. And it it was, again, anecdotal. It would also be a project that somebody on my team would have to be doing that day, right? They were making all these phone calls. Hey, I know we normally move that LTL. I'm going to take these three LTLs of yours and make it into a truckload. It was a whole thing. And it took time. It took effort. And you know what's easier? Just move them LTL. Because we got, we got 100 LTLs today. Just move them LTL, right? So I think that's probably what mostly happens when somebody says, I took your LTLs and made them into a truckload, or if I just have the one LTL and I say, I'm going to put it on the back of another truck, different customer, that happens. But again, manually, <laughs> manually with enormous effort, phone calls, coordination, and uh, I don't think it's done you know, nearly as well as it sounds like you guys are doing it. Well, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think due to due to a lot of the hard work you and your colleagues did and, and that I was doing in my past life as well, we'd call it partialing. You know, you'd, you'd right. have especially larger, you know, eight pallet LTLs, 12 pallet LTLs. It's kind of no man's land. Like you're not really going to ship that LTL, but paying for a truckload kind of hurts your brain. And so you'd hustle them manually. And, and, and yeah, to your point, we didn't do it often enough. When we did, we felt great. We knew that we were bringing a lot of really cool value to the to the customer. They'd save money and get higher quality. I mean, right. what what better outcome could there be in our industry? But but it was it was far and few between. What the, the decision we made at Flock was that we would build a platform and and attempt to revolutionize the entire industry. And that the only way to do that would be through automation. And we realized at first we thought we needed one thing and we were right. But what we, we didn't realize is we needed an entirely second piece of technology. The first, of course, is what we call an optimization engine. You need the algorithms. And there's many. It's not one. It's, it's many dozens that work together to combine, to look through. You, know, you have thousands of LTL shipments that have been ordered and they're sitting in a, in a pot, so to speak. And the technology, the software has to run through it and look for all the various ways to put those things together. That's the part I think people can kind of imagine. But what we didn't see six years ago and we didn't figure out till about three years ago was that we also needed a, a pricing engine that could work in probabilities or features that would make a bet and say, if the customer is purchasing six pallets worth of LTL transportation, that's not really what we sell them. That's what they're buying what we're selling them is a share of a truckload. 
a fraction right. of a 53 footer. And if I'm going to sell one customer a quarter or a third of, of the 53, then can I guess as to whether or not I'm going to sell the rest or some of the rest of that truck? Because is this all powered by like AI? So it's learning all the time and getting better at those bets. Yeah, this is working in a, in a machine learning environment, applying, you know, AI and, and data science. And it's to your point, it's that continuous feedback loop where you're constantly training the models so when we first launched this probabilistically priced product, we call it Flock Direct, in 2019, a little over three years ago, it was the first time anybody had said, come get a quote from us, just keep it simple. A, a small manufacturer going to flockfreight.com and saying, you know, what's going to cost to move, you know, four pallets, we would give them two choices. One is kind of the old way, we call that standard, meaning we'll try to create your truckload, but if we can't, eh. We'll act like a, a traditional broker and we'll, we'll right. hand off to a hub and spoke. Or you could choose Flock Direct. And that might cost a little more because we're making a bet as to whether or not we'll get other um, customers who want to show up in that same time and space or lane or corridor in order to, to move their freight with you. And for all of 2019, we made all these little bets. And the bet was yes or no, that that this is going to work out for us, that we'll get more freight. And we made the vast majority of our bets wrong in 2019. It, it was it was very expensive. And, and we fortunately had some really great investors and partners who believed in what we we're doing and understood that we had to have... You're honing it in. You, that you had to start somewhere. You had to start somewhere. That if you don't have enough data to be able to apply machine learning and AI, then, then those models can't get smarter. The, the data sets have to be thicker. And so by the end of 2019, it, 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 we kind of started getting to the point where, okay, these things are starting to work. Not great, but the customer was getting great quality. It wasn't a problem for them. It was a problem for us financially. We were burning a lot of, a lot of money. <laughs> but into 2020 and 2021 and now into 22, having moved you know, hundreds of thousands of shipments at this point. You know, the data sets are thicker now. The models have gotten much, much smarter and we make the majority of our bets well. We still make some wrong. So maybe maybe after work, if your, if your AI is not doing anything, maybe it could work on March Madness because if we're getting there. <laughs> I, I, think I mean, if it's gotten good at bets, I wouldn't want it in 2019, but if it's working now, let's get going. Yeah. Let's switch gears for a second. So we jumped right into it, which is good. But tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What What did you do before you dove into this trucking business so so heavily over the last twenty five years? Yeah. So part of my you know kind of venture capital fundraising pitch is I'll often start off with with all the drama I can muster and say that I was born into freight, and it, it really it really I think is true in my case. My my parents, both my mother and father, were employees of a van line of a household goods moving company that happened to be based in San Diego, where where I was born. And my dad was an executive on the the domestic moving side, literally moving families, you know, kind of corporate reloads. Yep. And my mom worked on their freight forwarding side, specializing in international relocation, specifically for the Department of Defense. For, for the military program. Oh, yeah. San Diego's that's where the uh, Navy SEALs are. And I'm assuming there's a lot of uh, other Navy stuff there, right? Uh, the, the entire Pacific Fleet, yeah, is based here in San Diego. Oh, okay. So that's a, that's more than the SEALs, I guess. Yeah. The SEALs yeah. Get all, that's, my, that's my frame of reference. I don't read a books about the Navy. I've read about the SEALs, though. Yeah, there's probably four or five aircraft carriers in and out of San Diego at any given time. So it's definitely an old Navy town for sure. And so, you know, dinner conversations for both my sister and I as a kid were, were flatbeds and air freight and ocean freight and dredge and, you know, lift vans. And like, this was just super normal. Yeah, that's funny. We always say it here in Detroit area. 
born with gasoline in our blood. Yeah. Yeah. And because there's so many people who are second, third, fourth generation in automotive and you have that lineage. You were born, you were born on the other side. You were born in the right stuff this, for this, this market. Yeah, it, 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 it seemed to be. I mean, little, little did I know at the time when I was in high Probably school. I hated it when you were a kid. <laughs> you know, I would just say I didn't know any different. You know, I don't think I thought about it being good or bad. It just sort of was. Um, and, you know, made for a, a nice kind of middle class upbringing in San Diego. And, you know, so that, that was great. My, my mom ended up leaving the employment of that company when I was in high school. And she started her own freight forwarder. And then oh, uh, wow. did, did very well in about a four or five year period, so much so that my dad was able to, to resign from that firm. And he started like a, a sister company, Freight Forwarder. So by the time I got out of college, not only had I grown up in freight, but I'd had a front row seat to entrepreneurship. You know, I watched both my right. mom and then my dad start companies. And so for me, you know, you're 21 years old. I was certainly overconfident. And my belief was, well, if, you know, my dumb parents could do it, how hard could it be? Three companies later, I will tell you, it is very, very hard. But, you know, fortunately, it seemed accessible to me. You know, the idea of like starting a company was not crazy talk and, and starting a company in freight was pretty reasonable. Did you work for them when you were a kid before you went off to college and during? Yeah. Yeah. For my mom, you know, at home, it was a, you know, she was working out of the house for the first few years and I was, you know, copying and filing and, you know, making phone calls or, you know, unpaid, of course, you know, just doing oh, whatever yeah. you have to do to help. My dad owned an engineering business and it was, you know, it sounds more impressive than it is. And I would go to work there and I remember always like my dad say, Hey, we're taking good Friday off. And then I'd be like, yeah, good Friday off. Then you go, Hey, Joey, why don't you wax these floors on Friday? <laughs> and then people would always give me that. Oh, it must be nice to be the boss's son. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> not really. More hours, not less. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, you 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 work in the family business, and and then so um, you grew up when doing that. I think well, the reason I ask is a lot of the people who I talk to had this who are founders who've done well like yourself. They played a lot of sports and they had a lot of part time jobs. And I always joke that. And then we, as you, you get successful and you have your own kids, you go, "Well, they'll never have to go through what I did." And you're like, "Well, maybe they should." <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, it's it was that it was a lot of sports. It was a lot of part time jobs. My parents allowed me to lie and signed a work permit when I was 12 that I was 13, so I could get a job at the county fair at the Tasty Chips and Cheese. As the French fry boy, you know, stirring 375 degrees <laughs> for two and a half weeks and minimum wage. And in my house, it was like, you were going to work. And by the way, you know, you're supposed to be 13, but 12 is fine. You know, go to work. Right. You know, and paper routes and, and busing tables. And I, you know, worked at a Petco as a stock boy and all, all those things before the age of 15, I think. You know, and I agree with you. You know, I've got two kids, 10 and 15, two boys. And they're certainly growing up in a very different environment than I did in, in every way, shape or form. And at the same time. You know, uh, I want to make sure more than anything on a personal note, I, I tell them every day, you know, you're entitled to one thing in this world and that's my love and that's it. Everything else you're <laughs> I saw, what's his name? Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary. I thought this was so funny. And actually I heard Shaq does the same thing. That he's, him and his kids are all getting on a plane. Shaq's in first class and they're, and they're in the back. They're like, why are you in the back? He goes, because I'm rich, not you. Yeah. <laughs> Dad has some stuff. You don't. <laughs> anyway, so you went to school. What did you study at school? What did you plan on being when you went to school? You know, I was. I grew up playing basketball and, and volleyball. And and in California, volleyball is a 
not a big sport, but bigger and bigger than here, bigger than Michigan, probably bigger, bigger than Michigan. And I absolutely really love that. So everything became about, you know, playing volleyball and becoming a professional beach volleyball player and all that. So, you know, I was always torn between that pursuit, but that's like DNA that I have, which is to work and, and to try to build something. So I, I was able to combine the two for a brief period of time, but ultimately realizing that that continuing to pursue that, you know, was going to be at odds with, I wanted, I always had that feeling of like, I want to start my life and sports was amazing. I ended up playing at, at Long Beach state for the, you know, the number one men's volleyball program in the nation. Oh, wow. It was very exciting at the time, but it still didn't feel like the rest of my life. It still felt like that was holding me back from kind of what I do today, even though I had no sense then of this now, obviously, but I had a sense of playing sports kind of did what it needed me to do. It taught me a work ethic. It taught me, I mean, sports is the ultimate. Nobody can hand you anything. I mean, you know, you're going to make the team or you're not, you're going to, you're going to be a starter. You're not, you know, you're going to achieve accolades or win the match or not, but it's just sheer hard effort. Talent only takes you so far. I mean, you play in a top program like that. Everybody's an All-American. Everybody's talented. Nobody cares. Everybody's tall. <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore. Who's going to work the hardest? You must. How tall are you? Six five. Okay, I was just going to say I'm five ten. I, I'm I played volleyball, but I, I don't imagine I could play with people like you. <laughs> you know, I was the shortest starter on the team in the '90s. I was the little guy. <laughs> I think also helped put that chip on my shoulder. I had to work that much harder than than all the rest. Yeah, there there's some there's some. Big I remember problems. when I was a kid, football by that time was getting too big. And I remember my dad saying, look, you play football, you play baseball. I played everything. But uh, he always said, you know, the only only sport you're really built for now is hockey. Well, you know, you look at hockey players are six foot five. (laughs) I remember meeting like Marcel Dion over he's a Red Wing. I think he was five foot six, five foot seven. A lot of hockey players were very short. I mean, incredibly fast and tough and um, low center of gravity. But man, now athletes are huge. But anyway, switching gears again. So you got out of school. Was your first job to go start a business or did you work a little bit? I have a wrong way to say it. but Well, yeah, I went to work for three. Well, I mean, through college, I was waiting tables and busing tables. I was a limo driver briefly uh, until I crashed the car my second night on the job. That didn't go well. That was <laughs> that's that's frowned upon. Yeah. Well, I, I made up for it by washing a lot of dishes, to say the least, <laughs> at, the, at the back of the restaurant. So yeah, always working through school and, and competing, you know, playing and then a brief stint with the national team and, and you know. Oh, was wow. Playing. Yeah. But that's, that's when you really find out what a secondary, if not third year sport football is. My feeling is most people never play anything beyond high school. But I always say the same thing is it, you learn to win. You learn to lose. You learn to go to practice. You learn to grind. And those are things that you brought to your job. I guarantee it. I mean, because there's probably been along the way, lots of wins, lots of losses and lots of grinding. <laughs> well, there's, there's a, I'll, I'll give you the, just a 30 second version of the story because it's straight out of Long Beach State right. Volleyball and it's been shared with particularly a lot of the sales teams here. We call it the 602 mile. Our coach there at the time was a former track athlete. I'm not even sure how he got into kind of elite men's volleyball, but he did. And we would condition for, for six weeks. So the NCAA has all these rules about when you can get in the gym and compete. Right, right. So we were allowed to run. Hours of service. Yep. Yeah, hours of service. These <laughs> back then. So we would, he'd run us to death. All sprints, you know, with the quick twitch sprint jumper. You know, we never ran distance, but I've run more 40-yard dashes than I care to remember. And at the end of the six weeks, the, the test, the, the, the anointment of you have finished, you know, the six weeks of preseason 
was to the whole team. Imagine a bunch of giraffes. I'm the little guy at six five. They're all six eight, six eight. <laughs> and they line us up on the track to run a single mile. Okay, it's a mile, but we had to run a sub six minute mile. That's not fast in the big scheme of fast, right? You know, a sub five minute. Among guys who are probably over 200 pounds, that is flying. (laughs) You know, a 545 is fast for a a tall, skinny, you know, volleyball player, right? But that we had to do it every year. We knew it and whatever. And and our mentality was there's no style points. I would argue just like business. If you got to, you know, get sick afterward, who cares? You got it done. That's all that matters. So we do this every year, and my goal was like a 545, give myself a little cushion. We actually had a couple guys could do sub sub five, which is, that's fast. But the majority of us were, you know, five and a half. You know, you're 20 years old, you're in the shape of your life. We go out and we'd run it. One year, it was my junior year there, we had a one kid who, you know, he, the threat was always, you know, if the whole team doesn't make it under six, you do it again. But it was like nonsense because it never, it never mattered. One year, kid showed up and he came in at 602. And nobody even noticed because, you know, you're bent over at the waist drinking water. <laughs> and then we realized we hear, you know, so-and-so, I'm definitely not going to say his name, you know, comes in at 602 and we turn and look at the coach. And it's like in the vague recesses of your mind, there was this threat. No one had ever seen and acted. And, you know, in retrospect, as a, as a coach, as a CEO, you know, it's kind of, there's some similarities there, you know. I realized all eyes were on him and he, he couldn't back down. So he said, grab some water. Take five minutes, get back on the line. We're doing it again. And you thought like, oh my God, okay. So you do it again. You, you know, you go furiously at this kid because you're so angry. Yeah, he's not a bad kid, but you know, he just didn't, you know, he missed it. It was that day. <laughs> line up, we do it again. He finishes once again in like 602, 603. Now you're furious. The coach says, take 30 minutes, keep stretching, keep walking. We're doing it again. We do it a third time. He comes in at 601, 602, and we want to tear him to pieces because, quite frankly, my belief then and my belief now is that's not a, a physical letdown. It's a, it's a mental letdown. That one second, two seconds. Now, running uh, uh, 100 meters one second faster, that is physical. That is different, right? But running one mile at the six-minute range, one second is psychological. It's mental. It's not physical. He didn't do it. So coach, after three times in a row, you know, he's risking torn hamstrings, sends us home says 5 a.m. tomorrow morning, back on the track. We'll turn the lights on. You guys are running. We do it again. It's silent. Nobody says a word. We run it again. Everybody makes it. This kid comes in at 602, 603. Everybody stands around. I mean, we're despondent at this point. And it was basically, hey, go clean out your locker. And that was it. They cut an All-American. And I've reflected on that story a million times. And honestly, I don't know if that was right or wrong because it's brutal. Like this is real life and this kid with a scholarship and you know, his life gets changed and, and, you know, maybe not for the better, but I will tell you one thing and that's, you didn't trust him anymore. And it would be tough to go out and compete and try to play for a national championship with a teammate that you didn't trust. So we talk about yeah. miles around here and, and we don't run 602 miles. 559 is fine. It doesn't have to be pretty. You can, you could dive across. The- you know, I love sports. I particularly love Michigan football. I watch all those games and, um, I read both Schembechler's books, and he had a, a run like that where everybody had to run, I think, below 6.30. But those were football players, and this was like 68, 69. And they all had – but it was brutal because when he got there, he felt like they were soft. They were top recruits, but they were soft, it was his feeling. They weren't soft. When they, and by the way, they had so many guys on the team, they did hitting drills till people got hurt on a regular basis and probably caused a lot of brain damage. But – 
it didn't recognize it then, but it, it, it's my feeling all the time about sports is you watch the heartbreaks of games where you say, you know, this guy made some little mistake and they lose the game and they might've been right on the, could have won. And I say, our life isn't like that. And in the morning we get to get up in the morning and say, yeah, I lost yesterday, but I can win today. It, and there is no like, Hey, at the end of the year, you don't say you're 12 and one or 12 and five or whatever. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a continuous, but I, I love the sports moments, analogies. Yeah, I think there are moments where one needs to be aware, though, of, of the stakes that you're playing for. Because I agree, in life and business, it, it's not 12 and 1. But there are moments, you know, as a salesperson, you walk into that big meeting. As a, you know, as an engineering leader, you're mapping out a strategy. As, as in my case, you know, raising a fundraising round. And I've, I've, you know, we've raised $400 million from the likes of Google and SoftBank. And I, you know, when I walk into that meeting with Masayoshi-san, the CEO and founder of SoftBank, you know it's a big moment. And I may have lost the previous, you know, things I was working on, but that, that day I have to win. And you have to understand that in that moment that I cannot let the team down today. Today, nothing less than a win uh, will cut it. I, I love the, I love that mentality. That uh, and again, when you you play on a, that big stage, I, I I always say I wish we developed everybody the same way college athletes are developed because those guys when they come out, they're first up, they're excellent time managers. They're also just tough as nails. Even the guy who never played is tough as nails just because of what they went through. Even at the elite college level, it's unbelievable the mental toughness. And he pointed out it's not always a physical toughness. It's a mental toughness. Anyway, enough of my blather. So I, I know I'm, I'm going to lose you here before too long. So I want to know more about you. You started your first company was a trucking company. Tell me a little bit about that. That was all completely bootstrapped. I want to get a little background on those two businesses before you started Flock Freight. So when and why did you start that? What what hole did you see? You know, I right out of school, I worked for my mom's freight forwarder for about three months. And it didn't capture me, you know, for some reason, partly, you know, I like, didn't want to work for my parents and, you know, certainly some ego in that statement. Partly, it just seemed very ethereal to me, you know, this idea of like freight forwarding household over, you know, multi-month transit times from <laughs> Asia, yeah, Europe, yeah. you know, to the US. I really thought the tangibility of trucks was powerful. So I was very kind of, I grew up around the space in freight. I wanted to work in freight and I wanted to be, an, and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I, I kind of had the realization, even at that age, that if I go to work for my parents, the best I'm ever going to do is is take something they built and maybe make it a teeny bit better. You know, maybe. In your mind and maybe many others, you'll never even get credit for what you do there. You know, I didn't I didn't think I deserved it, if I'm really honest. I mean, I felt like they were the founders. You know, they were the ones that took the big leap, that took the big risk, that had the idea. You know, military freight forwarding, it, it's not like they invented that concept, but but they started the company and and I wanted that. I wanted to to be the person who took the big leap and took the big risk. I, I suppose I've been that way as long as I can remember. So why a truckload carrier? You know, I don't know. It, 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 I like, I like the idea of the trucks. I like the idea of, of the, the more real time nature of it, you know, that. So you said you did that bootstrap. So you bought a truck and what kind of, how big were these trucks? Were they 53 foot or? I leased, well, in the mid to late nineties, we we're still running 48s. So I okay, leased. Yep. Seven forty eights from Extra Lease, you know, massive company yep. for a couple hundred bucks per month per trailer, you know, kind of beat up, you know, used trailers. And then I contracted 1099 owner ops on the power side. So, 
They, the owner op brought the power. I had the lease trailer. I've told people this a million times here at Flock. Really, the only difference between me and most people is I'm a guy who does the things he says he's going to do. That's it. You know, so I don't talk about things. I actually do things. Well, and so you were in your early 20s doing this, right? Yeah, I was 21. And so my parents introduced me to a factoring firm, factoring receivables, which I know that the carriers are certainly very familiar with. I hope most of your audience is not. Because I think of it as almost legal loan sharking, you know, the ability yeah. to borrow at 21, 22%, you know, interest rate is, is punitive to say the least. But the benefit to uh, factoring is that it's, it's non-recourse, meaning you don't have to give a personal guarantee. You know, you, you incorporate and if your business fails, which is a bummer, you know, I didn't have to like personally make that whole, not that I had the money. Right. So the, the way factoring works is I, I have an invoice. Most business, I have an invoice. So it says, Oren owes me $4,000 and then I, I owe money to my owner operator. I got to pay my own bills. So I sell that to the factoring company and now Oren owes them $4,000 and they give me 3000 And then when Oren pays them, they give me 500 bucks. <laughs> yeah, if there's the other 500 bucks went in. Yeah. And I, I early in my career, I was probably 20 years old. My dad had this engineering business and Ford wasn't paying us on time. And it just kept going further and further out. And I remember we were just this close to going out of business. I was flipping through Sports Illustrated and I saw this ad for factoring. Oh, wow. And it doesn't say, none of it ever says factoring. And I was like, what is this? Says money when you need it, renting right now. And I called them. They're like, "Hey, that's too small for us. Call these guys." I called them. I don't think my dad ever loved me more than that day. I saved his business, and I remember it was only after, like, when you when you save your business, you make payroll. We were delighted, and then kind of like back of napkin, like, "Geez, oh Pete." And I remember my dad goes, "I know a loan. I know a loan shark. <laughs> we can go to him next time." Yeah, it's. <laughs> You know, it's it's as expensive a commercial like institutional debt product debt product that exists, but but again, you know, they're willing to loan people money who no one else will loan money to. So and- yeah, twenty one years old, you knew how to get go about doing all this, and and that's not because you're the I mean, you're a smart guy, but it's more a drive and a, a lack yeah. of a lack of being timid. I just spoke to somebody today who's looking for a job. It's my mom's neighbor, great guy. You know, young people a lot of times. Are they're 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 not sure of themselves, and so they they don't take those. They don't. So you, you had a, a sureness about you, and I, I always say this: when I was your age, I can say this: I wouldn't have had the guts to do that. First off, maybe not even the knowledge, but it wouldn't have the guts. I didn't feel empowered to do it. I think that I had a combination of of naivete, like I didn't understand that that maybe I shouldn't be doing these things, and so that was a gift. And I think I had. A lot of confidence that came from, you know, like I was always a good student. I was always a good athlete. And so, you know, I I, I felt like I can do hard things. I'm not really terribly worried about that. And again, I don't fully understand how hard this thing is and that there's a very high (laughs) morale of doing this thing. At the intersection of those two things lies, you know, the founder of Flock Freight, you know, because I look back on, you know, we're six, this company now is six years old. And, and on the one hand, it's everything I, I, hoped it would be, you know, we are algorithmically carpooling freight at scale and growing like crazy. And and on the other hand, it's much harder than I ever possibly could have imagined. And had I known exactly how hard it would have been six years ago, would I have done it? I mean, I don't know. I don't really like to dwell on that question because I'm glad I did. You seem to like hard things. I do. I know. I like complexity. I really, I, 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 I get... I guess a little bored. I mean, you'd asked about kind of the, the history of it. So after five or six years of growing the, the carrier, the trucking side, the reason why I started the brokerage quite simply was 
it's not that I was bored. I just wasn't sort of intellectually satiated. You know, I, it was, it was, I've kind of like, I get it. You know, I hadn't, I, you know, I grew the fleet to 125. I didn't grow it to a thousand or 10,000 like hunt and stuff. No, but that, that's, that, when you get to 125, we got to be in the top five, 10% of all carriers, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still like an SMB business, but the, but the charts suggest you're at the well, top. How old were you? I was 26 by the time Jeez, um, I put a manager in place to run the trucking company and I wanted something more complicated. I wanted something more fulfilling and satisfying. And the cool thing about being in brokerage is you're not limited to the like location right. of your assets. You know, you can start to really think through solutions. I want to go to a customer and I want to solve problems and I'm not going to be constrained. So how big did you build that brokerage? To about uh, $20 million in revenue, you know, doing kind of cool project management. How long did that take you to do that? That was also about five years. So you got to the early 30s and you, by, by virtually anybody's standard, wild success. You could have just said, I'm, I'm all done. I'm, I'm yeah. going to be that professional beach volleyball player after all. <laughs> you know, I, I never look at myself through other people's eyes. I think at the time I felt like I was certainly comfortable and, you know, I, I made a nice living. Don't get me wrong. But the way that I thought about it was I had so much more I still wanted to do. A little bit of that, you know, that word potential can be a haunting word. If somebody says, oh, I think you have potential, yep. you, you could do something really big. And I had some friends around me saying, you know, that's nice and all, but you have potential meets, you know, I just was restless to do something really big, really complicated, really significant, really impactful. And I just kept stewing in my brain over LTL. I'm like, if you think of a traditional like business school matrix of like high price, high quality, you know, everybody would want to have high quality, low price, right? That, That would be amazing. But high, high and low, low work, I'm not going to name brands. I'll let your audience, you know, conjure their own. But, <laughs> but high price, high quality is okay. If the quality is really good, you can create value. And low quality is okay if the price is really low. You can create value there. But what the, the plot no one wants is high price, low quality. That's a bad place to be. And you would argue a, a free market, an open market would correct for that. It wouldn't allow it. The problem is within the LTL kind of hub and spoke conundrum, Certainly not all LTL carriers or brokers for that matter are are equal. Some are better than others. There's no doubt about it. But it's the mousetrap, I would argue. And and I came to the realization that that's really what I was doing is craving to find a different, better mousetrap and say, I actually don't see myself as an operational excellence leader. I think that there are many people out there that are that are better than I am at taking a, a machine and really making it uh, more efficient. I think where where my certainly my interests uh, what's debatable about talents, but where my interests have lied have been in what if I don't what if I sidestep all that and we just come up with a totally different mousetrap? What if instead clean of clean sheet of paper, <laughs> yeah, clean sheet of paper instead of building another LTL carrier and trying to do it better than some awfully talented, hardworking LTL carriers, why don't we change the rules of the game? Why don't we flip the script? What if we use tech to create shared truckloads out of that LTL? Right. And let me, let me, for those who might not even know what an LTL is, so it's less than truckload. And it's, let's just say I'm in here in Michigan. I want to send six pallets to California, to San Diego, to Oren. I don't want a full truck. That's going to cost me a small fortune. I don't know, whatever it costs me, five, six, seven, eight grand, whatever it's going to cost. It's a lot of money. I don't want to do that. I want to put my six pallets on the back of somebody's truck who's going to San Diego. Over time, this LTL industry developed where they say, hey, we will put your stuff with other people's stuff. And we and they all have terminals. So they work as almost like the old milkman. They have a terminal here in Metro Detroit. They would come to my location, pick up my six pallets, take their terminal. 
that that terminal would go from Detroit. I don't know where it would go to West, somewhere West. I don't know what the first stop is, but it would go West and then it would switch cars, maybe switch trucks, another terminal. And so, and then when it got to San Diego, another local driver would drive it to Oren. So traditionally there's been lots of touches, lots of handoffs. And rather than taking three or four days to get out to California, it might take six or seven. I don't even know what it is now, but (laughs) this is a brand new market. So I'd save money over a truckload, but my per pallet cost is higher for sure. And the problem is, you know, with that less than truckload, it's not really the pricing model that, that they have. And we were talking about this before we hit record is this archaic class system freight class. It's ridiculous. It is, I always say complexity is the enemy of quality LTL tariffs are the en- enemy of quality. And again, these are great, great LTL companies. I've worked None of the other people who are working in these companies today created it. They're trying to get out of it, but it can be a problem. And by the way, another thing, the top 10 LTL companies, I think do 80% of the volume. The top 90 do 20, the, or the top 25%, top 25 do 90% of the volume. Now, if you look over the truckload, which is massive compared to LTL, top carriers have one or one and a half percent. So, the capacity and the car- trucks are just aren't available in LTL the way they are in truckload. Yeah, the the LTL industry is is incredibly concentrated, um, and it's because the the capex and opex, the capital expenditure, the operational expenditures are so yeah, cool. it's not easy to set up. That's why nobody's doing it. Yeah, yeah, I, I tell people it's like operating FedEx or UPS without the aircraft. You know, I think it's a simple way of thinking of an LTL hub and spoke operator. It's 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 a lot of capital. So that's where you saw an opportunity is you said, hey, LTL has one of the challenges. And by the way, one of the things I didn't say it earlier, the whole time you're talking about what you're doing, all I kept thinking about is flexibility, 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 because what we've all lacked in the last two years is capacity, but also flexibility in that capacity. And so enough of my blather. Back to it. So what did you see and what did you create? from that, that the ashes of LTL, at least in your own mind, the ashes of LTL. Well, you know, as, as you mentioned before, yourself, me, and many of us in the, in the industry, we're manually putting LTLs or partials together and, and procuring a, a truckload and moving it that way. And it's a ring the bell moment, you know, hit the gong moment where right. you're <laughs> You know, not only could you save your customer a little bit of money and give them higher quality, but, but let's be honest, we made a little bit more money too. You know, we, we were pulling down more margin doing that than we would acting as a traditional broker who, who adds value, don't get me wrong, but doesn't add as much value because we weren't fundamentally changing the rules of the transaction. So my belief was, what if you had scale? What if you had, you know, $50 billion worth of LTL uh, moving 100 million LTL shipments a year in the U.S.? What if you had tremendous technology to automate that entire transaction? Our belief was, we could bring much, much better quality to the shipper. They would get high truckload quality for their for their LTL shipment that we'd have an opportunity to reduce their cost at the same time and then simultaneously also create greater profits for us. And it was those three wedges initially that we saw. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago or maybe four years into the into the journey where we realized additionally we could help the carriers make more money than they've ever made because they've got unused space on board the truck not all the time but quite often our our belief is like a third of the time or more they're running with 
10, 15, 20 linear feet available, which is kind of mind-boggling. You know, if, if the denominator, so to speak, is 53 linear feet, the maximum size of a trailer today, you know, they might have 20 linear feet available. You know, putting more, more revenue on board equals pure profit for them. And so creating an environment now, if the traditional truckload brokerage model is one of vigorously negotiate with the carrier and, and honestly argue over the pie. You know, I want more pie. You want more pie. Well, who gets the pie? It's a zero-sum game. You get more, I get less. <laughs> yep. So what we're doing is we're just simply making the pie bigger. And we're saying, let's not argue over the pie. You've got what's known as supplier surplus. You've got excess inventory available on that truck. And it's perishable, meaning you're in motion. You're not selling. moving. You haven't sold it to anybody. You're not going to sell it to anybody. And it's only there for two, three, four days or whatever until you empty that shipment and, and you get reloaded. Let's put more freight on board, which equals revenue, which equals profit. Once again, helping the shipper gain access to the high quality of truckload, allowing them to spend only the amount of money of, of the truck that they use because they're not filling up the whole truck, allow the carrier to put more than 100% of revenue on board therefore making more than their typical profit margin and unlock profits for us at Flock Freight and you know, enabling us to grow. And, and fundamentally, you know, make no bones about it, this is by far the most ambitious thing I've ever done. We want to change the entire industry. You know, we're not looking to make this a little bit better for a few shippers and carriers. We're looking to fundamentally be transformative, you know, change the whole rules of, of the game. Hello, everybody. Joe Lynch here. Unfortunately, the audio file got corrupted, and so we, the last 10, 15 minutes of my interview with Oren, unfortunately, is lost, which is really unfortunate because Oren is a fascinating guy. I'm, I was super impressed with him. He is a force of nature. I'm super impressed with him and his company. So I want to talk a, a little bit. I'll try and summarize what Oren and I talked about. First off, I interview a lot of founders on my podcast, and one of the reasons I do that is it gives us, it gives me and hopefully my audience an opportunity to to kind of get inside an entrepreneur's mind, inside a founder's mind. And I think Oren's kind of a perfect example of what why you want to get inside somebody's mind. Because I think when if you listen to this podcast, you can't help but be impressed with what he's done with his life and with his company. So first I want to talk about Oren, and then I want to talk a little bit about Flock Freight. So Oren's leadership is exceptional, if you ask me. And again, I can say nice things about him. He's not here, and I don't have to be embarrassed. But he's got a competitive drive. Obviously, being a competitive athlete at the college level will do that for you. But I think he was probably born with that. and It was honed through uh, athletics and other opportunities. Super impressed with that. Starting a trucking company at 21 and growing it to 125 trucks, that is super impressive. And it shows that he was confident. Fearless. He, he called it naive, but maybe he's being a little humble. He's a guy who's comfortable being uncomfortable. He did not mind that I don't know the answer. I'm going to push and I'm going to figure it out. And he just did just that. And then starting the freight brokerage and growing that to a good size. Super impressive. He he had a successful career by his early 30s. But transitioning on to Flock Freight. This was a problem, LTL being a problem, you know, and with LTL, sometimes you get too much damage. 
the transit times too long. During the COVID, we've had capacity issues with and embargoes from the LTL companies where they say we won't even pick up right now because we're so behind. Good for them for shutting it down. But LTL is great. It, it serves a purpose. But I think uh, the challenges with it is, again, the capacity is not always there right now. And even in a good market, it's not always there. Secondly, there's 25 carriers that make up 90% of that whole market. It's more costly per pallet. Uh, so Orin saw this problem, and we all saw this problem. And over time, we've all, many of us, have moved LTLs into truckload and thought, hey, that was brilliant. Look at what we did. We added value for our client. What Orin did is he really looked at this in a unique way. He had a unique perspective, a unique viewpoint. And this was a problem that was hiding in plain sight, and he fixed it with technology. And I know it wasn't an overnight success, but... <laughs> to raise $400 billion, he's convinced some, some very successful people. And to get all the business they've had, they've proved this out. And that's that's super impressive. So talking a little bit about Flock Freight for a second. So they've used technology to solve a problem that, again, hidden plain sight. We all knew about it. We kind of nibbled at the edges. Flock Freight went all in on, we're going to find a better opportunity for shippers. So for shippers, it's less costly. It's faster, it's less handling, it's less less opportunities for damage, less opportunities for loss. It's kind of just win, 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 win for, for shippers. For carriers, it's it, you've got a, a truck that might be two-thirds full, and somebody put some extra pallets on there, put some extra revenue in your truck. It's absolute win for the, for the carriers they're working with. I think for the industry as a whole, we've had a capacity problem. We've also had a flexibility problem, in the, especially during COVID. We all want more capacity. We all want more flexibility. Uh, Flock Freight has done just that for us. And last but not least, let's talk about carbon footprint. We know that the, the supply chain and logistics adds 80% of the uh, greenhouse gases that are out there. We have to address that. And Flock Freight does just that. This, so it's giving shippers an opportunity to ship for less costs, faster, less handling, and also check the box that we're doing the right thing environmentally. This is what Flock Freight is, is this truly a transformational thing. And I, I, I do this podcast three times a week. We throw words about like, transformational around a little bit. Flock Freight really is. And Anna Warren's just a, a fantastic guy. And I really enjoyed having him on my podcast. Thank you so much, Warren. And <laughs> thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.